0: Welcome to Terragrams. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone and I'll be your host for the ninth delivery of Terograms. Today we are joined by Beth Meyer in Barcelona. Beth Meyer is a registered landscape architect and perhaps one of our smartest landscape architectural theorists. She's an associate professor and twice the director of landscape architecture in the University of Virginia School of Architecture. She has worked for EDA and Hannah Olin and has consulted with Michael Ferguson and Van Valkenburg Associates. She's lectured internationally and published extensively. Her writings include "Site Citations, Grounding the Modern Landscape, in Carol Burns' and Andrea Kahn's "Site Matters, and the post-Earth Day Conundrum, Translating Environmental Values into Landscape Design and Michael Conan's Environmentalism in Landscape Architecture. She's currently working on a book project entitled Groundwork, Practices of Modern Landscape Architecture. Welcome to Terragrams, Beth. Thank you, Craig. To start off, please, uh, why don't you tell us how your current research is going for your groundwork project?
1: Well... Um, The book, Groundwork, which I should say has changed uh, titles a couple times over the (laughs) long gestation, uh, is a book that emerged out of my theories class that I started to teach in the late 80s, early 90s at the GSD. And that theories class um, basically developed an audience for a book. By that I mean I had no intention of writing a book, and my students realized that what they were learning in the lectures... Added up to something that was more than the summary of what was happening but a new way of trying to imagine landscape architecture Um, so in brief it was a way of trying to resurrect what I saw in 19th and early 20th century design literature and practice which was a landscape specific vocabulary and that came out of its medium that seemed to have been suppressed by the art, historical, and architectural um, history bias of landscape um, uh, history. So by that I mean uh, that I could uh, discern in the work from the early 20th century and the writings, um, something that was very different from the pictorial bias of a lot of art historical reading, or the sense that form only resided in Euclidean orthogonal Mm -hmm. geometry, and it was as if um, uh, a new language was being developed, but it was actually an old language that had just been suppressed. Originally I was calling the book Margins of Modernity because Mm -hmm. I felt that. And that's the that's a chapter now. That landscape, while uh, fundamental to the emergence of an early modern sensibility in the 19th century, I mean, you can think about the role of landscape in painting, or mm-hmm. right, in the shift from history paintings to uh, modern painting. Landscape became a subject rather than simply the background of images. Uh, so it was fundamental to 19th century early modernity, but became marginal mm-hmm. in the 20th century. Um, But more recently, I came across an excerpt in A.J. Downing, the 19th century American theorist, where he talked about a landscape architect building on the groundwork. He used that term Mm -hmm. to describe, uh, I think he he used the words warp and woof, but it was a kind of tapestry analogy for describing the ground. Warp and woof. Yeah. Uh, And uh, so that term groundwork, which now seems like the name of a, contemporary design practice, right? (laughs) Actually had this mid-19th century uh, genealogy. So the the book is focused on uh, landscape vocabulary and medium, and a big component of that is understanding the intersection between aesthetic and scientific theory, because the vocabulary comes out of those two territories of Mm -hmm. horticulture and geology, and eventually ecology, and aesthetic discourses that come out of painting and, and the arts. Um, And so it's that um, hybridity between the aesthetic and the scientific that I think actually provides this new landscape language which is not totally dependent on the vocabulary of architecture or, Mm -hmm. or art.
0: Is there very much existing already in the body of theory of landscape architecture that you've referred to or are you really going outside and collecting in order to create what doesn't necessarily exist?
1: Well, what's surprising is how much exists in the primary source materials. Mm -hmm. So, looking at uh, official reports and things written by designers. But what I'm trying to do is supplement that with a close look at um, drawings and maps. And so, I'm um, I'm influenced by writing, by cultural geographers, and some of the methodologies being used recently by garden historians and art historians to understand Mm -hmm. their work in situ to put it within a geographical context and so by um, literally splicing together site plans and landscape plans with existing condition drawings, city maps, geology maps, you start to see new forms, you, you start to understand how these landscape uh, plans, which seem um, very easy to lump into simple categories of formal and formal when they're decontextualized are seen as actually figuring latent forces on a site. So um, well, I can't say that I think this technique has been used to understand uh, landscape modernism. Uh, you can begin to understand its benefits when you look at the research of people like Diane Harris and Mirka Benish, mm-hmm. looking at 17th century landscapes, uh, villas, in relationship to cities and countrysides, not just seeing them as discrete and separate Uh, Bounded objects.
0: What type of case studies are in the book?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I've consciously selected some that are well known as Mm -hmm. a way of kind of surprising someone, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, I actually uh, provide some alternative readings of Central Park and Prospect Park to try to understand them within their social and geographical uh, context. But uh, I'm I'm thinking it's important at the same time to bring some new works uh, into Mm -hmm. uh, what might be understood as the canon. And so projects like Wellesley College, which haven't been uh, well documented from Mm -hmm. a landscape uh, historical perspective, I have found revelatory, and they've uh, altered the way I've understood landscape modernism. So some unfamiliar places like Wellesley Mm -hmm. College...
0: In addition to this work, do you feel as a theorist that you have a responsibility to innovate or come up with something that's new?
1: Well, I think anyone who's educated as a designer is interested in uh, their work as a creative and innovative uh, activity. And I guess the position that I've uh, taken is that... uh, I understand creativity and innovation in the way that people like Jerome Broomer have talked about it, uh, that one can't be creative unless one knows what it's in relationship to. And so part of what I've been um, interested in uh, doing is uh, providing a different way of looking at our uh, traditions and the work that's come before us so that our work can be discursive. And I think that that's something that landscape architecture can benefit from, um, the most creative artists I know, I mean, Anne Hamilton's the one that I know the best personally, mm-hmm. knows so much about the history of art, uh, and so here she is a very strong conceptual artist, and yet she reads extensively, she looks, that that gives her um, a foundation that she just blasts out of, and my sense is that landscape architecture as a profession is uh, small and insecure because of its size, but also because of the poverty of its uh, historical um, uh, literature. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like the theoretical work that I'm doing, this uh, attempt to decode work and um, uh, recover its language, is innovative in its methodology, but I'm more interested in it helping others be innovative Mm -hmm. to take um, a certain kind of... um, uh, Not just security, but uh, uh, celebration that Mm -hmm. comes out of knowing where you come from. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like a family foundation Mm -hmm. that you don't stay there, but it gives you the energy to try new things.
0: Mm. So you would say that that would be how uh, it would enrich... The contemporary practice exactly through knowledge of its of its past
1: and uh, understanding that its past is not theoretically impoverished I remember the first time mm-hmm. I taught at the GSD there was a dialogue and debate between Lori Olin and Peter Walker and they went on to just complain about the lack of um, theoretical work in our fields historically. And the students were all laughing, right? Because they had a 20-page bibliography for me that was only dealing with 100 years of literature. Like, where have you been? right? They, I mean, they understood the students... They weren't under- taking the course. They weren't taking the <laughs> class. The students understood that this work was there, but not well-known.
0: Right. Do you think that the voice, given it's this impoverishment, that the mm-hmm. voice of landscape architecture, or that this is one of the reasons that the voice of landscape architecture is not necessarily... Heard?
1: I think it's one of them. Uh, I think that it, the size of the profession is so small relative mm-hmm. to engineering and architecture. That's, that's another. But I uh, have had a real sense over the last decade that there's a, a moment that we're in uh, in terms of our own culture that is recognizing that the issues that a lot of landscape architects care about how you uh, actually live within a, a, a space that you are changing and and uh, sustaining at the same time, mm-hmm. that those issues which seem to be somewhat outside the um, kind of framework of um, broader concerns always seem to be marginal relative to economic issues or, or um, architectural issues, they're so uh, part of everyday discourse now mm-hmm. that uh, I find a, a, that the audience is different, so it's time for the landscape architects to speak a little bit louder, mm-hmm. right, because there's someone there to listen to. And I think that it's easier to do that when you're not only talking about your worth right now, but you can talk about this uh, intellectual and professional lineage that you're a part mm-hmm. of, because landscape architects have been dealing with a sustainable city for uh, centuries. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's just come about in the last decade
0: do you think the associated professions uh, around landscape architecture are bringing uh, a credible discourse, or are, um, uh, wait, how do I, mm-hmm.
1: what if I answer a question that you haven't framed yet? <laughs> I think that there's an awful lot of appropriation of our sensibilities, a kind of um, colonization from outside, mm. from urban design and architecture. And what I'm interested in is a little bit more aggressive colonization from our side out. Mm-hmm. I think that the exchange between the professions is absolutely necessary, but I really see it as a colonization. I'll give you a great example that um, in one of the uh, books I've been reading recently on landscape urbanism, and I, think it might be the one that came out of the AA, the machinic landscape. There's an essay, and I should remember who wrote it, but I don't, an essay that talks about the lineage of landscape urbanism, and there is no awareness, really, of the history of landscape architecture. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would argue that landscape urbanism, if you want to understand it in terms of a lineage, comes out of what Stephen Macher uh, described as, uh, James Macher, sorry, described as Pastoral cities, pastoral mm-hmm. urbanism in the 19th century. And so I read that and I, I mean, I was appalled, right? It was as if it was coming solely out of the lineage of modern architecture mm-hmm. that somehow intersected with a certain uh, dissatisfaction with the architectural object mm-hmm. and a desire for field making. And it just seemed so uh, limited. And I think it's something that landscape architects should be all over. They should right. be talking about the reverse set of influences. So there's an openness and an interest in these other fields, but...
0: What do you think has caused this naivete?
1: Well, I think there are very few uh, good histories taught in design schools that deal with the history of the environment built. Buildings, cities, and landscapes. So you get a history of modern architecture, and you'll never know that the Siedlungen, the housing estates that were so innovative as social housing in Europe... Uh, had landscapes designed by Lebrecht Mege Mm. who was designing sustainable, productive, Mm. edible landscapes Mm -hmm. and Klein gardens. You have students who take the history of landscape architecture and they never understand something about the buildings that are on the other side of their spaces and you know we're educated in these narrow bands which really influences what we know. And so I think it's partially design field driven but I think it's also supported in an unconscious way by the way in which the history of our fields is taught separately.
0: Do you think it has anything to do with the landscape architects not uh, necessarily being good self-promoters?
1: Yes, it's partially that, but it's also where the schools are. Hmm. that uh, A number of the more prestigious American schools of architecture and private universities that don't have landscape architecture programs Or if they do, they're in other colleges, not in the architecture. So it's one thing to say, well, it has to do with individuals who are in a field. And it's another thing to understand that there is an institutional structure uh, that um, reinforces separation. And it's the separation between land-grant universities and private universities that often uh, explains where landscape architecture versus architecture programs are. It's a separation in terms of service courses where you learn architectural technology versus landscape technology, or architectural history versus landscape history. So I think it's complex. I don't think it's necessarily um, due to some essential personality type that's mm-hmm. one kind of designer versus another. I think it's much more complex than that, and it has to do with these institutional frameworks.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you see that, the, in general, that is changing, and that the histories uh, are being rewritten?
1: Well, I know that, at least in my own experience, the architectural historians who teach at UVA, who have interviewed at UVA for positions recently, are very interested in altering and changing their teaching to deal with vernacular issues, to deal with uh, larger urban issues. And I've been approached by several faculty who teach in the history of modern architecture because my students have taken their class have. Mm-hmm. And t- talk to them about examples. And so I think this generation is very interested in trying to be less uh, building specific in the way they teach history. But it'll take another generation to actually find a way to, where these courses are all integrated versus separated by discipline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You're also interested in, in design as site interpretation. Mm-hmm. Is this a new interest or did you already sense it back when you were working, when you were practicing with EDA? Um, and Hannah Olin?
1: It's a good question. Sometimes you look back and you see where things started, but you weren't aware at the time. I would say that um, <clears throat> it was at Olin Partnership in the mid to late 80s that I started to appreciate um, Lori's uh, facility in uh, reading particular conditions, and they were both site-driven but also collaborator, uh, collaborator-driven. And uh, I found it quite remarkable that he was uh, able to work simultaneously with Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, Peter Eisenman and Michael Dennis, and to realize that not only the sites were different but the sensibilities of the designers. And, you know, on the one hand, I think a number of us were uh, apprehensive about that in terms of a chameleon-like quality. Like, perhaps it wasn't a um, kind of a known mark or signature style. But over time, I've really come to appreciate the sophistication that mm-hmm. that represented. Um, I'd say that for, for me to develop that point of view, a couple things happened. One was uh, my own interest in... Uh, the first year pedagogy at the GSD and the collaboration between uh, initially me and Linda Jewell but but particularly with Michael Van Falkenberg and Anita Berzabietia and Gary Hildebrand in the last few years I was coordinating the first year studio where we were looking to find a way to have the students develop um, site lenses that, you know, came out of a combination of our own interests in contemporary art, the work of Robert Irwin and his writing on site specificity, um, in addition to Smithson's work. Um, and it was in that four year, four and a half year period where um, the pedagogy I was developing started to resonate with some of the things I valued in uh, Laurie Olin's work, but also some of the things that I had read in contemporary art that I saw as uh, uh, becoming central in the writing of people like Anne Spern and Catherine Howitt in the 80s and some of the early works when George Hargraves and Michael Valkenberg were practicing. I think as I look back mm-hmm. and and try to understand where that thread comes from, comes from uh, it's hard not to realize that the field work that I did in undergraduate school, uh, particularly with Ben Halland, who was a professor at Virginia who'd worked for the Park Service for 35 years, gave me a way of reading a site that was based on his 30 years of just being in the field. Mm-hmm. And uh, it made me understand that sites were things that had stories to tell.
0: What type of tools did you did you use then, when you were beginning uh, this pedagogy, with your students Mm -hmm. in the studio? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, uh, one of the things we started to do was to try to find a way uh, to... uh, There's two things. One, how to begin to imagine your canvas as not blank, right? I mean, this is at a time when computers weren't being used in the Mm -hmm. studio yet, and the students would stare at a blank piece of trace, right? So, how do you bring the site back? into your um, studio. And so we did a number of things. One is that we would work on, I'd have the students document one site in a sketchbook over the course of the whole semester. And so every day, once a week, however frequent they got out there. And there were some fantastic uh, studies where they were able to see the vegetation structure change, the light change, the temperature change. And it was just unrelated to what they were doing on a project. Mm. It was just a site that they could go to every day. They could outside it, of the studio. Outside the studio. that They walked by every day on the way mm. to school or whatever it was, close enough to see it every day. So that was one, a, a kind of discipline of looking. Um, we also did a number of studios that uh, had essentially abstract sites but particular phenomena, and so how do you focus on just one thing? registering light or temperature or wind, uh, registering slope, and so we developed a pedagogy of site types that were separate from actually being on site so that they would begin to think more um, abstractly and generally, and then when they got onto a real site they weren't overwhelmed with the complexity of things. Um, so the, the, these things varied uh, as the computer became more ubiquitous and the availability of digital images than trying to actually work creatively with maps and there's a lot of good examples of people Mm. doing that now, but that was a third way.
0: Mm. This week you're in Barcelona, you Mm -hmm. have a group of students. How are you using your pedagogy regarding site interpretation here?
1: Well, that's a challenge, but it's also, uh, I think, an important lesson. There's times you see your own place more clearly by just being somewhere else, right? So I think going to Barcelona is a way to understand Virginia, (laughs) different and and better. But there's a a couple things that we've done. One is through the case studies we have the students do before we come here so that they not only study um, contemporary built work that's been designed by others, but they have to analyze the built work and then contextualize the built work. So the urban analysis that we did for uh, the preparatory work before coming from Barcelona didn't start at the scale of the city. It actually started at a case study, 12 case studies for the class, six buildings, six landscapes. And as the students started to understand the organization and the structure, the particular uh, significance of a a case study, they were asked questions that led them out and prompted Mm -hmm. them to begin to understand the surrounding blocks and streets and the precinct. But to move from uh, an understanding of a place that raised questions because you don't know why a certain line is reinforced until you understand it's connected to a street that's significant, that's part of a larger passage, or to realize that it's terracing, has something to do with a larger topographic structure from mountains to sea. And uh, I think the value of starting at the designed landscape and moving out allows them to understand site in a much different way than if we'd started with some large urban analysis mm-hmm. and you know eventually got to the case mm-hmm. study. I think by then they would have thrown the urban analysis out right. and not cared so much about it. Right. So it's connecting those site issues to something that has been built and that they can um, use as essentially a thesis for asking larger questions.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you still feel like a designer?
1: Yes, I do. <laughs> but it's a good question. I recently heard that Uh, uh, Well, someone I know (laughs) categorized a couple of us on the faculty not as designers because Uh, we didn't have a practice mm -hmm. Uh, and I can tell you that both of us very much identify ourselves as designers despite not building things right now and I think that that's an important issue to realize that a design education is not just about a way of making it's also a way of seeing and creating And so while I I miss a lot of uh, aspects of practice, I feel, even when I'm not teaching studio, that I see the world as a designer. And, uh, I mean, a good example is in Mirka Benish's conference about, I guess, around 10 years ago that was on methodologies in garden history. Uh, The talk I gave on um, understanding the sites Mm -hmm. of historical examples that, that couldn't have been given without the tools I have as a designer, my ability to um, spatialize a text, to ask questions about uh, documents that mm-hmm. other historians wouldn't look at. So I think that those skills are being used in a lot mm-hmm. of ways that are um, outside of the construction of a project.
0: And you're often asked in by... by uh design practices to consult? What role did you take as a consultant?
1: Well, I, uh, I've turned a lot of those down because I'm trying to finish this book, but <laughs> the, but I can tell you the what was really an extraordinary collaboration, the one that I worked with uh, Van Valkenberg on for Wellesley College. Um, I mean, initially I saw it as a great collaboration that was independent of my book and it actually changed the <laughs> table of contents of my book because I didn't know about Wellesley before. Um, and the reason I said yes to Michael is that he was asked to be um, part of a, uh, he, was on, he was on a short list for this master plan, and one of the things he realized was important about the campus was its history. But he didn't go to one of the landscape historians, It'd be very easy to work with in Boston, there's a lot of yeah. landscape historians there. He, he said, I'm interested in your sensibilities about this place. As a designer, how can you make history actually mean something to my staff and to Mac and Merrill, the architects who are working? So my role there was really as an interpreter, and to take not to write a historical narrative, but to actually figure out what the spatial implications and the design implications were of the history of this place. And that was a was a fabulous collaboration because. The diagrams that Katie Towson and I worked on and the models that we made of the Wellesley College site not only informed the master plan, but had a big influence on the first couple of projects that were Mm -hmm. done. Um, So it was a terrific um, bridging role that I played between a lot of historical documents that existed Mm -hmm. and then the conceptual ideas that came out of the master plan.
0: You are listening to Terragrams, and our guest is Beth Meyer. She is a landscape architectural theorist as well as a registered landscape architect. She is an associate professor and twice director of landscape architecture in the University of Virginia School of Architecture. Do you think it's necessary for theorists to have worked in, in a design practice?
1: Oh, I don't think so. In the same way, I don't think that everyone who's a designer has to be a theorist. But I know that it's changed the way I think about theory, and I um, and I actually like the the difference between how I think about theory and practice uh, relative to having been a practitioner. Um, I think the engagement with the real, the the things that are there already, and the forces that influence a project, is fascinating, and not um, a kind of compromise. And so I'm interested in theory that's not a flight from the world, but actually is an enabling condition. Mm -hmm. Um, Thinking about theory is somewhere between the world of ideas and concerns and physicality and and design versus something that's outside of design.
0: What took you away from practice and into academics and the world, eventually into the world of theory?
1: Chance. I mean, it would be nice to say a life plan, but uh, I had a great opportunity right after grad school, the summer after grad school, to TA the summer session at UVA for the incoming landscape architecture students. And it was the first year there had been a TA. Uh, I essentially went to Harry Porter, who was teaching, and said, you were just appointed associate dean. You're going to need some help teaching summer (laughs) session. You should hire me. And, I mean, that was chance and that I had this two-month period to realize I liked teaching. And it was a recession. And I got a call from Lenny Mirren at Cornell who was going on leave wanting to know if I would be interested in teaching for a year. Totally random chance thing. And since it was a recession, I said, <laughs> yes, that sounds good. I so I had this luxury, this great opportunity right out of grad school and it made me know I enjoyed teaching, but I also realized there were things I didn't know and I didn't want to stay. I was asked to apply for a full-time job at Cornell and I decided not to. So uh, I had the sense that someday I might teach. And the chance part of it comes up when I received a call out of the blue from L'Oreal and to teach a visiting studio at the GSD in 1986. And Laurie and I had met each other when he came to Cornell to give a lecture and he'd seen my student work. And that's a hard thing to say no to because you don't think that opportunity is going to come up. So that went well and then I applied for a couple of other jobs, worked in Laurie's office, and then got a call from uh, the GSD to apply for a position because the students had taken my studio and had seen my studio harassed the faculty to call (laughs) me. So, I mean, it's funny. I mean, it was much sooner than I probably would have on my own, and yet I'm um, pragmatic enough to know that when you get calls like that, they're not going to necessarily come again. It's a Mm -hmm. function of time. So, that was a bit of chance. The the other thing that I'd say is, I got great advice from Michael Van Valkenburg when I started teaching at Harvard, in that he said, you know, you can do one or two things really well. It's hard to practice and teach and write. Mm -hmm. So figure out what you want to do well and don't try to be a generalist. And I realized that there were things that were that I wanted to say when I was practicing and I couldn't. And that was the time to try to start doing that. So I think I developed a voice in the first couple of things I wrote. And I realized that nobody else was close to staking out some of those issues and that it was a, a, a void in the field that I should try to fill.
0: What are the difficulties between teaching and research or teaching and writing?
1: Actually I don't think there's any difficulties between teaching and writing. I think the difficulties have to do with administration, <laughs> teaching and writing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's a different way of, <laughs> of building things, building institutions and designing them. But I think they all that, that particular role that any designer Plays should be circumscribed, mm. and <laughs> limited to a period of your life.
0: And how do your students affect your work?
1: Oh, enormously! I have I have learned so much in my studio and my lecture classes from my students. They, I mean, introducing me to texts that I don't know. They're coming from humanities backgrounds, so I learn from that. It's one of the joys of teaching is that I. I mean, I suspect that almost every chapter in my book has. Insights that have come mm-hmm. out of the interaction I have with students.
0: In June of 2006, you sat on the jury of the ASLA Student mm-hmm. Award uh, Awards program. Was this the first time that you participated in this event? It was. And what did you see?
1: Surprises.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The work was so good. And all of us on the jury were flabbergasted. Yeah. And it was a great jury of academics and practitioners. Gary Hildebrand was the chair. And we were pleasantly surprised at the quality of the work. I mean, there have been times when I've seen student work and I've worried that programs have been in a time warp mm-hmm. 15, 20 years behind practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I saw was the reverse. Now, You can say, well, who is submitting? It was the largest uh, representation of schools ever, and part of that is that the ASLA is is presenting the student awards at the professional awards Mm -hmm. assembly, and so that's bringing them together in a very big audience. I think it's had a big difference. But I'm also quite hopeful that there's been a, a, I don't know, a generational shift or that the schools that are in more marginal places are able to stay on top of practice now, given... Uh, the kind of communication that's possible digitally, mm-hmm. not only through text. So, the practitioners on the jury from Ignacio Bustraosa, um uh to uh, Gary Hildebrand, Tom Oslin, I mean, they were writing down people's names to call. <laughs> I mean, the work was so good. And it wasn't just from a few schools. Right. I mean, there, were, uh, there was one student uh, who, whose work none of us knew. He won two awards from the University of New Mexico. And I actually ended up incorporating some of his work into another article I was Mm -hmm. writing uh, for George Hargraves and Julia Zerniak's Large Parks Mm -hmm. book.
0: What's his name? Uh, He's he's quite good, I'll tell you later. (laughs) What's his phone (laughs) number? He's in Portland. (laughs) Um, Did you see any big discrepancies? I mean, in spite of seeing very good work, did you see big discrepancies, nonetheless?
1: Yeah, I did. I did. I should say more gaps uh, than discrepancies. Uh, We were all uh, really wonderful work dealing with the public realm, parks, a a lot of work on reclaimed sites and uh, industrial landscapes. Um, The kind of work that I love that you do, Mm -hmm. this in-between landscape of housing, Mm -hmm. invisible. Uh, In fact, it was an area that we were um, saying that the school should start to actually... Think seriously about that this uh, complex landscape of buildings and infrastructure um, just not represented at all there is a residential component that is a new one that's been co-sponsored by Garden Design magazine and uh, there wasn't much work in that category we pulled uh, uh, temporary housing in uh, the in, in response to the earthquake at BAM mm. in Iran out of another category into this one, Mm because it seemed to be the best residential project that we saw. Mm -hmm. So we were pulling things from different ones to supplement that particular area. The other thing is that there was a great range in the way that uh, digital technology and graphics were deployed. And the more interesting work was work that seemed to hybridize, hand drawing and Mm -hmm. digital representation, where you started to see an awful lot of generic Photoshop, happy face. Actually, very generic landscapes, right, Mm -hmm. that came out of that. And it it was almost a a sense that we were back in this generic magic marker land of the 70s, but it was in a digital form.
0: And were there any schools that stood out or schools that you hadn't necessarily thought of in in a while?
1: Well, New Mexico had some great projects. Uh, One was a studio uh, on the border, really beautiful project about the border between uh, the United States and Mexico, Um, there was an absolutely fantastic uh, project uh, from Oregon, Um, amazing Midwest uh, landscape installation that was from, I think, Iowa. Mm -hmm. So while there were a lot of people who had applied from certain schools, mostly graduate programs on the East Coast, it was very, we didn't know where anyone was from when we were picking them, and it was fantastic mm-hmm. to they see. Were, so they were anonymous. They were anonymous. We're, and, and if you had, if you knew a scheme, you weren't allowed to talk mm-hmm. about it. So uh, there were three of us, uh, Gary, Rich Hawks, and I from universities. We had to recuse ourselves from mm-hmm. discussions of any work that we would have known. So I was actually quite pleased. I mean, all that being said, one of the things I found quite remarkable is the work of Anu Thor Studios. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastic. And... Uh, It wasn't always clear that it was from her studio, which was also a nice thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it was uh, clear that there was this kind of fabulous way of looking at sites, but not necessarily her way of looking Mm -hmm. at sites.
0: Recently the architecture program absorbed the landscape architecture program at the University Mm -hmm. of Virginia. Has this been a good thing?
1: It's been a great thing, but I wouldn't characterize it the same way. There are two departments that mm-hmm. formed one department. We weren't absorbed by another. It's more
0: of a merger than an absorption. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a department of architecture and landscape architecture. And while there's a size inequity and we only have a graduate program and they have an architecture undergrad and graduate program, I think it's been a terrific thing and that for the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a lot of collaboration in the um, school at both the option level and the introductory level studios and um, it's allowed us to um, kind of capture that informal collaboration and also recognize that a lot of the area of innovation that needs to happen in our field has to do with the negotiation between mm-hmm. an interior and an exterior space and it's not a plan issue and it's not solely a sectional issue it's an issue that has to do with the environment and if you're interested in Uh, rainwater, like when we were down uh, at the Maritime Museum today, and you're wondering where does this water come from on a roof, Mm -hmm. that it's hard to solve that problem solely as a building problem or, or solely as a landscape problem. So setting up ways that the students understand that these processes that are so fundamental for a sustainable urbanism require them to be conversant and to create a dialect that's neither purely architecture, purely landscape architecture, but it's a distinct third thing.
0: Do you see your students mixing up a lot?
1: They, uh, socially and intellectually, uh, it's been fantastic. You know, when I first started teaching at Virginia, all the landscape students were down at the end of the studio and the architecture students and the other bays, Mm. and they didn't know who each other were. I mean, there were 200 students on a tray, and they just didn't know who they Mm -hmm. were. I mean, now I worry that some of the third-year students don't know the first-year students, Mm -hmm. but they sure know all the third-year architecture students and the second-year students in their vertical studios. So I think we're building a a, a way of conversing and understanding the different fields for what they are, but also realizing that there is a place that they have in common. Mm -hmm. Um, And right now, I think... I think about a fifth of our students in the graduate uh, programs are doing dual degree, a fifth of the landscape students are doing dual degrees in architecture, so 20%. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also some students doing dual degrees with planning and occasionally one with history.
0: So you have a lot of crossovers.
1: We do. And they don't all come in that way. They Mm -hmm. often find themselves in a class or on a Barcelona studio, Mm -hmm. and then the next thing you know, they're... Uh, deciding they want to uh, stay in school a little longer.
0: <laughs> Your department has recently gone through the uh, the hiring of Christina Hill, mm-hmm. who's now the new department chair. Mm-hmm. How will this change the the landscape architecture program, and mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. where where are y'all going?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great addition. We're we're thrilled that she's accepted the offer, and I think what Christina allows um, us to do is to build on the uh, preliminary success of this curriculum readjustment we did about five years ago with our ecology and technology sequence where we threw up all the classes that were related to construction and all the classes related to plants and ecology and said that should be one sequence so every time you learn about moving earth you should understand that relative to water flow and every time you detail a wall or a painting surface you should understand that relative to hydraulics and soil conditions Well, we felt like we had a good sequence, Mm -hmm. a good uh, skeleton or structure, but it needed some flesh, and it needed someone who knew ecology a lot better than Mm -hmm. our current faculty. So we were relying on outside visitors Mm -hmm. to come in and provide some flesh. And Christina is going to do that and more, and uh, not only through her own individual courses that she's teaching, but her interest in um, thinking about uh, beginning to uh, hire a series of people who can uh, start to create uh, ecological modules for a lot of our classes to um, bring up the aspirations of that uh, sequence or, and turn those aspirations into something that's really fleshed out. She started that this semester with her first studio where she's working in Baltimore on the waterfront and uh, understanding the waterfront in terms of both immediate conditions but also the implications of global warming. Mm -hmm. And she selected that city because the EPA's long-term ecological research station there for urban ecology has a big database. So the students are going to be able to not only begin to make propositions but test them relative Mm -hmm. to the ecological data that the EPA uh, has been collecting now for I think about five years and so she's thinking of a long-term series of studios where there's a kind of feedback, not just a proposition and speculation, but the ability to then test the models Mm -hmm. and refine them.
0: Will this make your program different than others across the country?
1: Well, we think it does because uh, we feel that uh, by having this content uh, be not only um, something that is associated with Um, values right ecology is often thought about as an ethical issue versus Mm -hmm. a science and having it be something that's deployed at the scale of design not Mm -hmm. simply at planning and then lastly having it be deployed um, relative to um, making Mm -hmm. kind of material scaled making that it does differentiate us because i think a lot of the interest in ecology right now is embedded in diagrams of process Mm -hmm. but it doesn't always feel like it's kind of tested at the um, material and tectonic um, reality of a site. And while studio in school can never approximate construction and the kind of knowing that happens over a process of being in an office, I think it is important that it gets grounded. And I feel like that that's what we're striving for, is for there always to be this particularity of how process is um, kind of harnessed and deployed. And I have to say that I worry a little bit about the graphic fascination with imagining process without it coming back to the section and to something that's scaled and measurable and uh, gritty. It's something I find weirdly um, reassuring about some of the drawings in the school, which Mm -hmm. I think for the... um, There's something about the desire to communicate the material condition of the built uh, the existing and the built place that comes across in the drawings they don't have the cool detachment of uh, a lot of drawings that are uh, digitally produced mm-hmm. right by hybridizing those you can see a kind of uh, desire to ground those those drawings somewhere
0: Are there any private practices that you are familiar with that are doing this kind of work Well
1: Well... um,
0: Or do you think landscape architects haven't quite found the footing to be making a difference in the... in this world of ecological restoration or protection?
1: Well, I don't think that... I think there are a number of firms that are doing uh, work that inspires us who teach, but also prompts us to think about the next step. Um, some of them have, you know, come through our lecture series recently. So whether it has to do with, um, firms like West State and Davina and Del whose work often deals with temporality and process and change. Um, or William Wank in Denver, who's been very systematic and trying to understand water infrastructure in that region and how it informs uh, uh, mostly public work, civic work. Um, I think uh, smaller uh, firms at one time, uh, Margie Ruddick before she went to work for WRT, also interested in the uh, nitty-gritty of working in the city and dealing with ecological processes. But none of them are interested in restoration. And that's the one thing that I want to differentiate uh, that term from what I'm talking about. Because this interest in ecology and technology uh, is not about restoring an ecosystem. It's actually constructing hmm. ecosystems. and Not underst- even
0: reconstructing, more it, constructing.
1: It's constructing. So understanding that cities are ecosystems and how do you begin to deploy that knowledge within a tectonic constructed environment. I mean, if I were to talk about some of the firms that do primarily ecological restoration, I think that in general, uh, many of those early um, uh, emphases come out of firms that equate looking like nature with uh, ecological process. And I think that that's a a totally different condition from what uh, we're trying to do in in studio, which is not to say that because it functions it needs to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. It's look may take on many, many forms. If you understand the processes, the forms are um, kind of wide open. Mm-hmm.
0: Why haven't we been? Why haven't landscape architects been making ecologies? I mean, of course, we. Of course, the practice has been. Mm-hmm. Um But what's the big push now? Mm-hmm. Are we, is it just not happening properly? I we don't we haven't had the information or the tools? or Well,
1: I think that there's a, I mean it, rather than a generalization, I would say that the environmental movement of the 1960s and 70s uh, resulted in a lot of people being very interested in ecology and focusing on conservation and preservation and ecological design. And they often set themselves up as antagonistic or opposite of those who wanted to build and make. And it's not, um, I think, uh, unfair to say that uh, you often found yourself in a situation in the 70s and early 80s where you either went to school or went to work in firms where you had two choices. There was a group influenced by the landscape artists and then a group in- influenced by ecologists. And I think what starts to come out in the discourse of the 1980s, which is really becoming mature now, is a generation that is trying to find a way to bring those two things together and to understand the artfulness and the constructed possibilities of um, ecology. So whether it's in the um, site-specific phenomenal investigations that Michael Van Valkenburg did in the 80s or the work of William Wank or George Hargraves dealing with larger landscape infrastructure that's clearly constructed and mm-hmm. kind of joyfully constructed, that that work uh, was groundbreaking and trying to hybridize this artistic landscape as art and landscape mm-hmm. as process. And so uh, I mean, we're seeing now students who came out of schools who are introduced to those two things as not separate being able to take it to a different place a more sophisticated place and so the sophistication resides in not just looking at process generally but actually asking yourself can we measure this and can we begin to actually demonstrate uh, that something's healthier that's more productive uh, that um, it's not just something you do out of um, kind of ethical position but because you can actually argue for a greater good that comes Mm -hmm. out of it and I think what's possible now because of the data that's starting to be stored in different government uh, agencies for different cities is that we can begin to test work and to model it and simulate it and that's going to be fascinating and it's where I think the poetics can be actually backed up Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, principles and data and I think it's going to take a generation that's able to test things temporally to use the Mm -hmm. computer as a way of beginning to imagine possible futures and to begin to do relatively inexpensively and easily a a sort of post-construction evaluation Mm -hmm. that we haven't been able to do before, which will take us to a different place Mm -hmm. and I think a a very interesting place.
0: So do you you think this technological advance has been one of the catalysts to... Put us into this position and have there been other have there been yeah. other catalysts which have raised our awareness like why now why so late
1: well i, I don't always think everything's late slow maybe mm-hmm. right but i do think that the profession works in waves right that you're educated in one way it takes a while to start actually being able to do your own work right and as you start to do that, you're working on what you know, and then mm-hmm. another group. So there's this kind of wave that happens, right? We're already
0: behind. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah.
1: Um, so I think that's one issue. Uh, I think the other thing that's happening is that really there is a recognition that there's a different audience out there, and uh, I think we're behind the audience right now. Frankly, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been uh, amazed to see the popularity of uh, Gore's film, mm-hmm. uh, to see the way in which. The city of Chicago has developed a green roof agenda mm. that, you know, across the United States where environmental issues have been so below radar and um, not within the mainstream that uh, they're understood with a sense of urgency now. So I think that that recognition is kind of pulling landscape architects mm-hmm. like faster to try to begin mm. to make a case for things. and. And I think that's the point we're at right now, is that a lot of this work, um, it's clear uh, that it can be done and that there's some benefit. But what benefit, mm-hmm. right, beyond uh, aesthetic and ethical? Mm-hmm. How do you begin to demonstrate it as having worth so you can argue with an engineer mm-hmm. or the value engineer mm-hmm. in a project?
0: Do we need another Thomas Jefferson as landscape architect and politician? politician. <laughs>
1: Well, I have been very interested in the way in which our colleague Maurice Cox has made a case for the power of an architect who's a Mm -hmm. politician. He was the mayor of Charlottesville while on the faculty at UVA. And um, um, I'm heartened by the degree to which a lot of students want to be citizens, if Mm -hmm. not politicians. (laughs) They understand that they need to be active outside their practice Mm -hmm. in terms of changing the discourse. And I know that's very different from my generation, and uh, I hope it's not a a blip, (laughs) but it's actually a trajectory.
0: We'll see. Yeah. (laughs) What are the challenges for women in the field of landscape architecture?
1: We'd like to think there aren't any, but there are a lot, right? And uh, we've spoken about the controversy in the last month about uh, Martha Schwartz's uh, tenure case Mm -hmm. at Harvard, and it's astounding to think that that program is a hundred plus years old, and there's never been a tenured woman yeah. uh, in it. So uh, there, there still is. Um, a, there's a small community of senior women in the field, and I mean the, the challenges are not um, rocket science. I mean, one of them is the fact that um, women have complicated lives <laughs> and. Um, What it takes to have a family and a practice is complicated and uh, means deferring things uh, for a while. But I also think that uh, there uh, needs to be recognition that um, women moving into the field, uh, even more important, minorities moving into the field. I mean, landscape architecture is grossly represented in terms of uh, minorities, and when you think about A designer not just doing private commissions but public work you would hope that we'd have the kind of representation Mm -hmm. that our constituency does and we don't so I I think that there's a um, enormous need to not only educate uh, younger people about the potential roles that they can play in this field but to also figure out how to set up um, structures within firms and universities that allow for um, part-time work, for um, deferral of work, for uh, multi-year leaves. I mean, we don't have a system in the United States like in some Scandinavian countries where we have decent daycare, affordable daycare. So I think the firms, that they want the best people, which means a whole range of, mm-hmm. of uh, people, they're going to have to find a way to hold on to women longer. Too many women in architecture and landscape architecture leave the field.
0: Right. Because now... Is it true that the there are more women studying landscape architecture than men?
1: Definitely the true in graduate school, not necessarily the true mm-hmm. in undergraduate schools, and undergraduate schools still graduate many more um, people every year than the graduate programs. Mm-hmm. But I constantly hear there aren't enough people to hire for the work to be done, mm-hmm. and the CEO roundtable has been adamant about the importance of getting more people into the pipeline. I would actually say they're right, but how do you do that? Right. We need more fellowships and scholarships, so they should be helping to fund those. It's not going to come from state legislatures. And the other thing we need is uh, recognition that one of the reasons there aren't enough people to work is that they don't stay in the field. So how do you actually right. make She's it possible for that? So I, I think, I mean, I'm an optimist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that a lot of, we started talking at, uh, talking about the, small voice of landscape architecture within the design fields. It's related to the small percentage of minorities and women within the design fields. And I think a lot of those things are institutional and can be changed um, versus the result of personal bias. Mm -hmm. I'm an optimist in that way. (laughs)
0: That's good. In 2005, the Museum of Modern Art mounted an exhibition on contemporary landscape architecture or contemporary landscape design. Mm -hmm. From my knowledge, it was the first major exhibition like this since a similar exhibition at the MoMA that was held in the 60s. Did you have a chance to see the show?
1: I didn't see the show, but I know the show.
0: Did you think that that they mounted an accurate representation of the field?
1: Well, I think any show like that is great for the field, right, to have MoMA do a landscape show, puts a lot of heat on the curator, mm. since there's only been one in 40, 50 years, I think the other one was Elizabeth Kassler, when mm. she did the little book, uh, Modern Gardens and the Landscape, and uh, and I'm not even sure that was a very big show, I'd like to know more about it, uh, but that was a quirky show as well, mm. if you just uh, look at the catalog. Um, I think that this one, it was... Um, it was difficult to look at from the outside just looking at the exhibition catalog and to understand it as a whole because of the mix of built and unbuilt work. And I think that that was an unusual thing. Often you'll see an exhibition about a lot of unbuilt work or one about a lot of built work, but this was a mix. And so it was attempting to include some younger designers who work hadn't been built before, and that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to evaluate those things since we know that something that actually has power as a physical landscape it's not always the same it's something that's uh, modeled uh, just through drawings I mean what was great about the unbuilt work is that it allowed a number of new projects that are dealing with um, issues of landscape urbanism to kind of be brought in mm. I think about uh, the fresh kills work as uh, one example but it but it did mean that other things that I think were really powerful built landscapes weren't included and My own um, personal um, uh, vote for something that was Mm. not there, that should be there, was Teardrop Park in Mm. New York City. Uh, But I think that so many of Michael Van Valkenburgh's works are extraordinary in terms of their um, the, the way in which they engage you physically. He has such a strong sense of his medium and the power of... Plants and the ground mm-hmm. to uh, to create experience and to evoke reactions. Those kind of landscapes they they um, don't necessarily look great in drawings. Mm-hmm. In fact, you'd argue that you probably need film and other things mm-hmm. to record them. And so that, to me, was the limitation of what I know about mm-hmm. the exhibition. You would think that an exhibition on contemporary landscape today would be multimedia, right. so that it doesn't fall into the I mean the, the, so much of the writing about that catalog was about temporality and process and everything that was depicted was about image <laughs> so um, I mean I've heard a lot of gripes about things that were in and things that were out In the end it's a great thing the students all know that catalog they take a, they, they all have it it has introduced them to a quality of work and to understand that that work was presented at MOMA does a lot for our, mm-hmm. our field.
0: You mentioned a moment ago Fresh Kills. Do competitions help landscape theory?
1: Oh, I think uh, I think competitions help landscape practice, <laughs> but competitions are uh, times where you can take the pulse of what's being thought about in the field years before they get built, and that's fantastic. And competitions also allow you to see a range of approaches for one site, and so I think they have a power that individual commissions don't always. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about Parc de la Valette and the impact it had on my generation and uh, the way in which it um, foregrounded the problem that I talked about of environmental designers and landscape Mm -hmm. artists, right? You know, being separated out and the degree to which that landscape denied any material, temporal uh, possibilities, right, for the site. Um, and I think that the Downsview Park competition in Toronto and Fresh Kills uh, in the United States <laughs> have recently done the that. The And the High Line. They have done that uh, as well, um, that not only the projects being built, but the other projects have uh, created a, a, a new possibility and actually a new discourse. I think those competitions had a huge influence on that student work that mm. I mentioned before. Mm. So even if those things aren't built... They're changing the field.
0: In the fall of 2004, Heidi Homan and her colleague Jorn Langhorst from the University of Iowa produced a pamphlet entitled Landscape Architecture in Apocalyptic Manifesto. And it painted a rather grim portrait of the current state of our our practice. Mm -hmm. You read that and were rather surprised and responded to it. how has this changed the way you've taught?
1: Mm. Well, I, I changed my requirements for my theory class the next semester to have my students write their own manifestos. And manifestos that I thought were uh, what a manifesto should be, which is an affirmation of belief versus a complaint and a gripe about mm. the field. And uh, this gets back to me being an optimist, <laughs> and also I think anyone who's a designer is—they have to be an optimist, right? Because particularly a landscape architect, you're designing something you'll probably never—well, you might see it in its right. maturity, but maybe not, right? And it's definitely a hopeful act in that it's about a new beginning and a change. So uh, for the students, instead of all their work being analytical and interpretive of other text. It was the first time I had them uh, write their own statement of beliefs. And that exercise has been revelatory Mm -hmm. and uh, inspiring to me to see them staking out their turf and uh, sticking their necks out Mm -hmm. and saying what they believe in. And to do that based, uh, not at the beginning of the class when they're somewhat involved in themselves and not really understanding themselves as part of a larger family of ideas, but at the end of the class, when they can build on work. We also end uh, the class now looking at other manifestos, like mm-hmm. uh, Dietrich Kinas' writings, and to help them understand that manifesto writing is a contemporary event, while we associate it maybe with the early 20th century avant-garde, that it has a role to play now. Um,
0: have, you seen, have you seen any other reactions?
1: Well, the Landscape Architecture magazine obviously had a, you know, a a series of, uh, essays and reactions. And, uh, you know, I haven't talked to many colleagues, uh, since then about how it may have affected their teaching, but it's actually a really interesting issue. I, I sense that what they wanted to get out of this is not what they got out of this. Um, partially because so many people saw their, maybe their complaints were kind of put in a general way to spark a reaction, but they were so generalized that they seemed uninformed. And I know it's not the case. I know Mm -hmm. Heidi knows that history. And I don't know um, her colleague, but I've heard he's also quite bright. Um, But there's a moment when you're trying to be uh, kind of incendiary where you have to also be very Mm -hmm. particular about what you know and don't know. And I think there was a way of reading, not knowing them, you could read that as... uh, Someone who's dissatisfied because, they, because of what they think the field is, mm-hmm. but it's not. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's been quite fantastic is to hear my friends who are practitioners um, who responded to that talk about the possibilities they see in practice right now versus the limitations. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's uh, something that maybe the generation ahead of them didn't see at such an early state in their careers. Mm-hmm.
0: What kind of advice do you give your graduating students?
1: Some of it is very practical, and some of it is less so. They're very apprehensive about where their first job should be, <laughs> and I'm more interested in talking to them about what their second job is going to be, because often that's the catalyst to right. their own practice or something else. But, um, but I say a couple things to them uh, that are quite practical. One of them is that it's very easy when you start working, to maintain the same kind of rhythm you had in school, but that rhythm assumes that everything you're doing is for yourself, and it's not, it's for someone else. Mm-hmm. So I um, encourage them to find a space within the first few years of their practice to do some of their own work, whether that has to do with uh, competitions or writing, some things so that they have an identity that's outside of the practice, and I, and I think that's fundamental. Um, In my first few years in practice, I did competitions with friends. A group of us, about a dozen of us, had a monthly, I'd call it a study group, but it it was a little bit of a griping group sometimes, (laughs) about our bosses. It was called Moto. We invited lecturers and talked about projects and books. It's so easy to move into practice and get consumed in someone else's firm. And it's so important to find a space so that when you're ready for your second job, mm-hmm. you haven't lost your voice. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, a big part of the advice that I give mm-hmm. folks. Um, Julie and I, and, and uh, I suspect Christina now, um, are adamant uh, when we're talking to our students, when they are uh, looking at schools, that they need to be fearless and warrior-like mm-hmm. if they want to be in this field, because you need to like the fight. It's hard to get things built, and it's hard to get them built uh, in the best of circumstances, and if you don't like the fight, you're not going to get them done. Mm -hmm. So that's the final thing, is just to shore them up about the importance of speaking out and finding strategies for changing things. We talked today as we walked around Barcelona about street section details and water in the city and the difference between how things could be done and are done based on codes, the students need to realize that some of those things they can change through the beauty and the power of their work and the innovations that are in their work and some of it they need to do as citizens and different roles and capacities. So I hope that that message is clear to them, that they can't assume they can do it all in their practice, that some of the things they are gonna have to do by being part of a community and figuring out how you change expectations.
0: It's been wonderful to have you on the show and good luck and have a great time in Barcelona.
1: Oh, I'll try, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Craig.
0: Beth Meyer is a landscape architecture theorist and registered landscape architect, as well as an associate professor and the director of landscape architecture in the University of Virginia School of Architecture. Thank you for joining us for the ninth Dispatch of Terragrams. To find out more about Terragrams and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terragrams.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Terragrams is made possible with the help of the School of Architecture and the Robertson Digital Media Lab at the University of Virginia. Find out more about their programs at www.virginia.edu. And finally, special thanks to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself. To more of the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. I'm Craig Drazone, and this concludes the ninth of the year's